the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Today we start a brand new uh, series called No More Kings. And uh, the first, first one, honestly, is always just a little awkward. You have to kind of set things up. There's some exposition of the story, if you will. And I, I hope that you can hang on because there's some important foundations we got to lay here at the beginning. But first thing, I want to make sure you understand the title. When we say no more kings, what we're saying is there's no other kings but Jesus. Okay? We have a king. The the problem is that we tend to, as human beings, no matter how much we love Jesus, we tend to also align ourselves with other kings, other authorities, and other groups. We tend to divide ourselves into other little things and other alliances. And, and, and as Christians, the only hope in an ever-dividing world, an ever-disintegrating sense of morality and what is true and what is real, the, our only hope is to make sure that we only have one king. So again, we're not defined by what we don't do or what we're against. We're defined by what we do. And that's what this is about. So does it make sense? Everybody got that? It'll become clear as the series goes on, but that's where it is. The other thing that you need to know is every, every message in one way or another th- during this series is going to have to do with some stories from the book of Judges. It's a strange book, but it's got some powerful stuff, and it sounds in some ways really, really different than anything we could imagine, and in other ways it sounds exactly like our world today. And we're going to walk through those stories and several other things as well together And as we do that, I want to let you know that the first two chapters of Judges are kind of like a foreword. And they're not really in chronological order. It looks like Joshua dies twice. He doesn't. It's not a mistake in the Bible. It's just kind of how it sets it up, kind of like what I'm doing right now. But we're going to jump right in with four words I need you to say out loud with me. This is a foundational truth that has to just be here at the very beginning. And then we're going to start walking through the story together. Are you ready? Four words. Let's say it together. God's people serve God. One more time. God's people serve God. Sometimes we tend to think that God's people are just people who somehow believe in God or accept that maybe he exists somewhere or maybe we do a few things that he said somewhere in the Bible but we don't know where that we're good. Sometimes we we think that God is just, if you're an American, you're a Christian, which is less and less true every day. Are, are, are you following me, how this works? We have all these other ideas, but the bottom line is God's people serve God. We can't earn our way to heaven. We spent a lot of time the last several weeks, I hope we established that, only Jesus can actually help us get to heaven. Only Jesus can actually redeem us. But at the same time, if you want to know who the people of God are, say this one more time with me. God's people serve God. Jesus made this very clear. The people who are in the kingdom of heaven are the people who do God's will. This has always been true. Right before the book of Judges starts is the book of Joshua. And in that book, Joshua made some mistakes, but by and large, they got it right. And they took over the promised land. And as they took it over, every single battle, every single step that they took that they got right was actually just an act of faith and obedience to God. There's some questions, there's some issues there. We could go back and do that a lot, but I'm just trying to set the stage again. I want you to know where we're going here. The sad thing is, one generation later, Joshua is barely dying. In the, in the first couple chapters here, as it's setting up this story, he's, he, he, 
they're just finishing up this huge successful campaign of claiming the promised land for God. And even in that moment, they're already drifting away. Already the promised land itself and the people there are becoming more important to them than God himself. The values around them are starting to bleed into the things that they're doing. They're starting to just fight because they want to fight or because they want the land. It's not just an act of obedience to God. And things are already starting to get bad. Judges chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 starts like this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. Sounds good so far, right? They're still seeking God and they're asking his will. Sounds pretty good. If if I could, I'd like to take one more break here before we really get deep in this story. I want to clarify, this might be the most relevant thing ever to some of you guys. But I get asked a lot, how do you actually hear from God? People talk about hearing from God. I've got some friends in this congregation even that they're constantly telling me these conversations they have with God. And it's like, and so I said, and then God said, and then I said, and then God said. Have you ever heard anybody talk like that? And you wonder, like, what are they talking about? See, even in the Bible, God talks to different people different ways. But it is available to all of us in one way or another to hear from God. And I don't want you to miss that. That is something that's available to all of us. The most reliable ways, of course, are through Jesus Christ himself, who who the Bible calls the Word of God, and through the Word of God, the Bible. Those are ways that God is always going to be able to speak to you. But as you look through the story, he, he sometimes spoke in a burning bush. Actually, that only happened one time with one person. He spoke through a gentle whisper after a bunch of storms and stuff. Actually, that was only just one person as well. Sometimes he sent angels. It sounds like when you tell a bunch of stories in a row that that happened all the time, but it really didn't. It only happened a few times over the course of a a long lot of years. Sometimes, even today, people hear God. Even even the ones who are describing these conversations, sometimes they're actually hearing an actual voice. Sometimes it's just like a really strong feeling. They just know what the answer is somehow. And they can't really articulate how they know. Sometimes God speaks to us to the wise counsel of other Christians around us. Sometimes through dreams or a specific message of prophecy or a feeling. There's all these different ways God can speak to us. But I do want you to know that he does still speak. And if you're not hearing from God, you need to start with the scriptures and start with praying. And who knows what other ways he may talk to you. I can't promise a burning bush or anything, but I, I guarantee you he wants to speak to you. Everybody, are you still with me? Are we, are we going somewhere? Okay, awesome. Now, here's something else that'll help you understand some of these stories, because these people are not, from this point in the story on, most of them are not really following God. And I used to read these stories and get really jealous, go, how do they hear the voice of God over and over and over again when I struggle to hear it every single day? These people don't even care about God. Well, one of the clues is this. What they're actually doing is they're using the Urim and Thummim, which is also called the sacred lots. These were kind of like people debate what they were. Were those stones? Were they kind of like pulling straws? Were they sticks you threw on the ground, bones you threw on the ground? Kind of like dice, flipping a coin. People debate what they were. What we know for sure is they had them, and they were used explicitly 
more than 30 times throughout the scriptures. And many other times when you see just random people going to God and asking questions and they're very direct, like yes or no, what you can kind of imply that what they're doing is using these Urim and Thummim. Here's how it works. In Exodus 28, verse 30, insert the Urim and Thummim into the sacred chess piece so that they will be carried over Aaron's heart. He's the high priest of Israel. And when he goes into the Lord's presence, in this way, Aaron will always carry over his heart Sorry about the mic there. Aaron will always carry over his heart the objects used to determine the Lord's will for his people whenever he goes in before the Lord. Notice that it's above his heart. It's over his heart. It's near his heart. It's not in it yet. But there's some symbolism that it's so close to his heart. So what's probably happening here in this moment when it says that these people that aren't even following God anymore are still trying to seek God's will, what is probably happening, I'm going to use the imagery of dice because I don't know for sure, but they're going, should we go up? Yes. God says yes. Who should go first? Judah. Are they going to win? Yes. All right. Does that make sense? You see how this works? Now here's the other thing. This is the really good news. The last time you see people casting lots to hear from God is in Acts chapter 1. And the apostles got together and they cast lots to pick between two guys that were going to succeed Judas. You know why you don't see it after that? Because in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit showed up. And that was God's plan all along. If you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And you can hear from God if you want to, and if you invest in that and you learn, He wants to talk to you. You don't need dice anymore. It's not near your heart. It's in it. Are you with me? And so that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But as we watch these stories, some of the times it's going to mention there's an angel shows up for these random things. But if it doesn't, and it's just a bunch of random people that are hearing from God more clearly than you do, just take some comfort that they're probably rolling dice or throwing sticks or bones on the ground. But he is talking to them even then. All right, here we go. Judges 1, verses 4 to 5. When the men of Judah attacked, the Lord gave them victory over the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and they killed 10,000 enemy warriors at the town of Bezek. While at Bezek, they encountered King Adoni Bezek and fought against him, and the Canaanites and the Perizzites were defeated. So far, so good. The Canaanites were very evil. I had Perizzites when I was growing up in New Guinea, and it wasn't any picnic, so it's nice to see... <laughs> It's nice to see that they got eliminated from the promised land as well. <laughs> but all of a sudden, it starts getting really weird. Adoni Bezek, this is the king they just defeated, escaped, but the Israelites soon captured him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. That's not a command from God. Adoni Bezek said, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They took him to Jerusalem, and he died there. We're seven verses in, and we're already seeing all the morality lines starting to blur a little bit. They're, they're, they're taking their fairness and their ideas about what's just and what's right from the enemies they're defeating more than God himself. It's weird. Uh, again, the first two chapters are kind of this 
this introduction, this forward kind of thing. Here's some other things that kind of highlights. We see most of these stories later on. Judah destroys Jerusalem, the town that had been Jerusalem and later becomes the Jerusalem as we know it in the rest of the scripture. Um, Caleb and his family, including his son-in-law, Othniel, the first judge, they, they get established in the land. The Kenites get settled in. They're very important. They'll come back into the story later. But now we come to Judges 1, verses 22 to 26. And I've I, I just put the first and the last verse of this little section up there. In between, I want you to really listen for something. Because this little glimpse of a story is very similar to one in the book of Joshua, about the way they took over Jericho. Jericho was a major battle. It's, you know, there's even a song about it. Joshua at the battle of Jericho. It's that battle. And the way that they won it was there was this, they listened to God. It was all his plan. But part of the help that they got was from this lady named Rahab. Does this sound familiar to anybody? And, and, and in the eyes of Jericho, she was kind of a traitor. But what really happened was she had heard about God. And she saw what's coming, and she didn't want to be a Jericho person anymore. She wanted to be part of the people of God. And when that battle was over, she became part of God's people. She actually became part of the line of the Messiah. Her life was completely transformed. Now, this story, it's a little glimpse of a story, but as I read it to you, listen, because there's a lot of similarities, but there's some key sad differences. The descendants of Joseph attacked the town of Bethel, and the Lord was with them, which means they won, they sent men to scout out Bethel, formerly known as Luz. They confronted a man coming out of the town and said to him, Show us a way into the town and we will have mercy on you. So he showed them a way in. And they killed everyone in the town except that man and his family. Later, the man moved to the land of the Hittites where he built a town. He named it Luz, which is its name to this day. By the way, it's to the day of when they wrote that, not to this day. You see the differences? He doesn't become part of the people of God. He doesn't become a citizen of the new town of Bethel. He starts over in the town of their enemies and creates another lust. There's no transformation. They're not affecting the people around them. The people around them are affecting them. But they still think that they're taking over the promised land and doing God's will. See how the waters are starting to get a little bit murky here? They start thinking more like their parents. They start making excuses. They say they can't take over the Canaanites because they have iron chariots. They can't take over the Amorites because they're very determined. Literally says that. Suddenly the promised land itself, instead of a, a gift or an act of obedience, a test of their faith has become an idol. Tony Evans says that an idol is anything or anyone besides the true living God and his word that influences you to the degree of making the final decision. Let me say that one more time. It's whomever or whoever, those are his actual words there, influences you to the degree of making the final decision. If there is anything, it doesn't matter if it's a good, respectable source or not. If there's anything that at the end of the day, God says this, but this other source says this, and we go with the other source. That's an idol. That's not okay with God. There are no other kings. There's one king. There are no other gods. There's one God. 
And see, their divine right to this land was only tied up with their covenant with God. And they had just, in Deuteronomy 30, they had just gone back through this covenant. And then again, in Joshua, they went through this covenant. But instead, they're following the pattern that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. You should go back and read that whole passage. We'll come back to it several times over the course of this series. But I'm just going to read you one verse for right now. Romans 1.25 says this. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Tony Evans again. He says, we keep making all these choices and wonder why things are so chaotic, not only in the world, but also in the church. It's because we keep choosing idols over God's revealed rule. And once again, some of these idols are not bad in and of themselves. Most of you have little statues or knickknacks of something around your house. If you're not praying to them and lighting candles to them and using them to make decisions instead of seeking God, it's probably okay that you have those little things around your house. They're not evil in and of themselves. But if anything, even something good, becomes more important to us than God. It influences the way we make decisions, the way we evaluate God's commands for us. Something is definitely wrong and we're missing the whole point. That is the biggest danger of any kind of addiction you can have. That's the biggest problem with our modern obsessions with things like sex or money or politics. It's one of the many, many tragedies of racism or nationalism, or activism, many of which are just out-and-out out evil, like racism, and some of them aren't out-and-out out evil, like nationalism, but they turn into something that completely distracts us from God. And we still believe in these moments that we're doing the right thing. That's the most dangerous place to be. It's somewhere where you think you're doing right, but you're actually doing wrong. And you've completely disconnected from God. Judges chapter 2, God actually sends an angel, specifies, it's pretty awesome. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land and I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they called the place Bochim, which means weeping, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord there. Here's the sad thing that we need to notice at this spot in the story. There does come a time when we're out of time. God is so patient and so merciful and so loving. It's such a miraculous, supernatural, superhuman, not even close to human level. That sometimes it seems like he has infinite patience, infinite love, infinite mercy, but he doesn't. And he makes that very clear in his word. And this is one of those times. He had literally given them centuries to work this thing out. But he finally goes, okay, I'm done. 
You're on your own now. Now, when they keep repenting, here's the other thing in a second, we're going to see that he sets up a deal with, that's where the judges come from. He realizes that periodically, at least, they, they, they are at least kind of interested in him again, and so he starts trying to help. But I'm telling you, for each one of us, and also for us as a nation, as a church, as a family, as any group we might ever be in, there comes a time where we do run out of chances. There comes a day when it's our last day. There comes a moment where it's the last moment, and the last moment is actually too late. And we can't just go through life assuming that one of these days we'll get it together. We've got to live every day in service of the one true king. So, again, the chapter continues. We see Joshua's last days. Again, it's not in chronological order. They're just setting all this up. There's the pattern for the rest of the book starts to be set up. Let me read you some of that. Judges 2, verse 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. And it just starts spiraling down. Are you tracking? Here's where we're going to go these last few minutes we have together this morning. There's some solutions here. There's some solutions where we can avoid this trap or escape it, where all of us have, I promise you, all of us in one way or another are part of it. Somehow or another, these same traps are there. For us, the first thing we've got to do is we must destroy our idols. Let's say that together. We must destroy our idols. Uh, Billy, the other night at the local TCTC thing they're doing, he said, It's not our job to tell other people that we're wrong. I was really excited to hear him saying that. That's, that's true. You know what is our job? To show people what is right and when necessary to speak the truth in love. Actually, we're supposed to do both of those all the time. Show them what's right and speak the truth in love. We're supposed to do that. We're not, it's not our job to go around telling everybody else what's wrong. I love this. We must destroy our idols. Not everybody else's idols. Our idols. Do you see that? When God's people reject Him and look elsewhere for truth or security, identity, we lose the privileges that come with our identity and our relationship with Him. We're no longer the people of God when we, serve, when we cease to serve Him. We're no longer functioning as the people of God when we break the covenants that He makes with us. We see this even in places and organizations, even churches, and we certainly see it in the nation of America. I love history, and I love America, and I love our Constitution, and I want to say that out loud really clearly before I say what I'm about to say next. Because I'm just trying to be really honest with you. This is one of the few countries that was founded with God in mind. That got their idea about rights and justice and everything. Somehow or another it trickles out of the Bible. And they, they, they accredit it to our creator or nature's God or things like that. And that's awesome. But America has not always got things right. Even from the beginning our founding fathers were not all really true Christ followers. You guys know that, right? And, and, and we believed as a nation in things like manifest destiny. 
For, for a long time, we put up with slavery and a whole bunch of terrible things. The stuff going on right now that bothers you and that bothers me, it's not the first time there's been ungodliness in this country that puts in God we trust on our police cars and on our money and stuff like that. I pray every day, and I hope you do too, that God will bless America. But we are not primarily Americans. We are the people of God. And if America starts to become a God to us, if this becomes our promised land, we're missing something. We're missing something huge. Because our promised land is heaven. And our job is to build Christ's kingdom wherever we are. Where we are right now happens to be America. So should we do everything we can to make America a Christian kind of a community? Absolutely. But only because we are following the king. Amen. Do you understand? Amen. There's a difference. No matter where we are, our job as the people of the king is to build the kingdom of the king. As the people of God, our job is to serve God. Whatever is right or whatever is wrong to us is not about what's popular or what's, what's accepted or what's not or what's demonized or what's political or what's anything else. What's right or wrong has to do with what God said about it every time. Amen. And anything less is idolatry. Anything less is having another king set up instead of the one true king. And that's never, ever, ever okay with God. And if we're going to make real changes in our society, i got to tell you, here's where it starts. It starts with you and with me. Paul writes, Galatians 2.20, My old self has been crucified with Christ. My old self. Not my community and their policies. Not my government. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A few verses later he writes, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. We must serve the king. Can we just say that out loud with me? Let's say it out loud together. We must serve the king. What's it look like to live in the kingdom? We're going to explore that for several weeks together. But this morning, I want to encourage you to read the entire chapter of Matthew 13 later on today. you got some time. Today's a serves day. There's nothing going on here tonight. I hope you guys take some time and read that whole chapter. This will probably sound familiar, though. In Matthew 13, remember we talked recently that Jesus was all about setting up these memorable moments, helping people remember what he was saying. And this is one where it's not a sermon on the mount, it's a sermon in the boat. He goes, he's down by the lake and there's so many people, he gets in a boat and they push the boat out and then he teaches them for a long time. And most of what he taught in Matthew 13 were parables, stories he made up to teach a truth. And almost every single one of them starts like this. The kingdom of heaven is like. So you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Here's what Jesus said it's like. It's like a sower sowing seed. Some falls on the road and gets taken away. Some falls on rocks. And you've heard this story, right? He, he says the kingdom of heaven is like wheat growing in a field. 
And in between the weeds, an enemy comes and puts a bunch of weeds, and they're growing up together. And so the servants of the, the, the farmers say, hey, should we weed all the weeds out? And the farmer says, no, we'll sort it out at the harvest. I know the difference between wheat and weeds. We'll sort it out then. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts crazy small, but it grows way bigger than you could ever imagine. It gives shelter and, 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 and shade to the world. He said it's like yeast. It works through stuff. It kind of disappears into stuff, but then it changes everything as it goes. And he said it's like a treasure that's hidden in a field that somebody was, is willing to give up everything so that they can have that. Or a pearl, that a pearl merchant would sell everything that he owns so that he could have that one pearl. It's worth more than everything else that you and I ever could have put together. He says it's like a fishing net. And at the end of the day, you throw some back and you keep some. Again, you need to read all those stories. We'll tell them again soon in entirety. But as we wrap up this morning, I need you to catch some of the things he's saying about the kingdom here. First thing is, not everybody makes it in the kingdom. Even the people who think they are, like all those fish in the net, not all of them are actually kingdom fish. Are you with me? Just because they're in the net doesn't necessarily mean they're making it. Second thing he's saying is, the world is full of enemies and distractions and pervasive evil, things that are going to work into us like yeast. And we've got to be careful because we can get distracted and we can get strangled like the seeds growing up through thorns. We, it happens, it's easy to happen to all of us. We need to be careful. But it is possible for us to actually have a huge harvest for God if we stay on track. He says the kingdom has an almost unimaginable potential to grow and to create blessings for the world. That's always his image. That's always his dream. That's always what he's trying to say. That's what the mustard seed parable is about. The, the, the idea is that we make things better here. Salt, light, mustard seeds, he's always talking about that. And finally, don't miss this part. Because this is where we're going to wrap up today. You have to trade everything for the kingdom. You can't serve the one true king and a bunch of other kings. If you live in America, you should care about America, but you can't put being an American above being a Christian. Are you with me? Amen. I mean, this is how it works. Whatever little group you're in and whatever little other ideas you may have, they're all small K kings or small I idols. They're not capital G gods and capital K kings. They can't be. There's only one of those you got to be willing to trade everything for him. And that's what I'm asking you to do this morning. More than ever before. Some of you guys have been following Jesus since before I was born. Some of you guys might not even know who Jesus is. And probably everybody else is somewhere in between those two extremes. But this morning, here's what I'm asking you. Wherever you are, you can get closer to Jesus, I promise you. And I'm asking you today to surrender and promise to serve the one true king more than ever. Are you willing to do that with me this morning? I see five people nodding their heads. I hope there's a lot more than this. Are you willing to surrender and serve the one true king this morning? Hallelujah. Are you willing to trade everything, everything, no matter what that's going to cost us, for the kingdom of heaven? Are you willing to do that this morning? Now there's only 15 of you. This is getting scary. 
Are you willing to trade everything for the kingdom of heaven? There we go. Here's a scary one. Are you willing in the next couple weeks and starting today to destroy your idols? Then hallelujah, let's stand and sing about it. And if you've got a public decision, make it today.